Well, we're continuing our study in Revelation. We've been looking at the seven churches, and we're on church number six this morning. The church in Philadelphia. Uh, Last week, we looked at Sardis, and uh, the church in Philadelphia is also in, uh, in Lydia. See if this works. Not yet. There we go. Uh, The church in Philadelphia is also in Lydia, and it's a mere 30 miles from Sardis. Uh, But the churches in these two cities could not be more different. Unlike Sardis, who the Lord did not give any uh, commendation to, Lydia, the Lord has no rebuke for. Uh, So they're kind of day and night. Instead, he commends them in five different things, and then he gives them five different promises based on those, uh, those commendations. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you would turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. He says, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Again, we have that familiar intro. Um, Christ says to write to the angel of the church, which we've talked about is um, the messenger who's taking uh, the message to the church. Um, And then he goes on, and I don't know if you've noticed this. I haven't been here for all the messages, and I don't know if anyone's touched on this. But then the Lord also always ascribes to himself some type of attribute. Um, And it's unique in every instance to the letters. And it's it's pretty cool because it's always something fitting to that church. So here the Lord describes himself as three things. First he says, The Holy One. He says He's the Holy One. And often when we hear the word holy, we think of the meaning as what? Say that again? Somebody said it. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, But that's not very accurate. While it can be an aspect of the definition, holy means much more than just perfection. Um, My favorite definition, which I think was given here by Aaron Harlow a long time ago when he was talking about holiness, is the otherness of God. The otherness of God. And what that means is uh, the word in in the Hebrew and the Greek literally meant separateness or set apart. So when it's referring to him as holy, it's referring to him as separate, set apart. So that passage that we hear a lot when God says to us, be holy for I am holy, He's not saying be perfect because I'm perfect. He's saying be set apart because I am set apart. Christ is described as holy a a number of times in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, before he's even born, the angel is speaking to Mary and, and it says, The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, 
the Son of God. The child will be holy. The child will be set apart. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? He's the Son of God. He will be set apart. Um, Some commentators translate the word holiness even as set apart for something special. So Christ was set apart. He was here for a reason. Uh, In his death and resurrection, he's called holy. In Acts chapter 2, verse 27, Peter is preaching at Pentecost and, and speaking of God's work in Christ's death and resurrection. He says, You will not let my Holy One see corruption. So after he's died, Christ promises, You will not let my Holy One, referring to Christ, my set-apart one, see corruption. And now he sits enthroned in heaven as our holy high priest. Hebrews seven twenty six and 27 says, For indeed it is fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like other high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sin, those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. Our high priest is holy. He is set apart, separate. And as this verse says, he's not like the other priests. The other priests had to offer sacrifices over and over and over and over. And the author of Hebrews says that those sacrifices never took away sins. They only covered and God looked over them until Christ came And as our high priest offered himself once for all and paid for our sins. It's a glorious thing, isn't it? So he says he is holy. He is the holy one, the separate one, set apart. There was no one like our God. There was no one like him. He is completely separate, completely separate from sinners, completely separate from his creation. He is unique. And there is no one like him. Next, he says he is the true one. Higher, gotcha. The true one. In John fourteen six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John eighteen thirty seven. Christ is with Pilate, and Pilate says to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. It's a common misconception today by most people that there is no absolute truth, but there is. There is absolute truth. And Christ is that absolute truth. Absolute truth is found in Him because He is the true one. Truth comes from Christ because He is the truth. Next is a very interesting statement. He says, He is the one who holds the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Uh, Now, if you look back at Isaiah chapter 22, this is an allusion to that verse. In Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 through 22, he says this. 
there's some names in here, and I'm terrible at phonics, so I'm going to butcher them, but you can't see them up there, and if you're not turning to Isaiah, you'll never know the difference, so don't worry about it. Um, in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Ahilakai, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judea. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So help me here a little bit. Who's David? He was the second king of Israel. He's the king of Israel. So if you're given David's king... The David, the king, if you're given his key, you have keys to what? His kingdom. The palace. That's authority, isn't it? That's power. You can open doors that no one else can open. You can close doors that no one else can close. You can lock them. No one else can get in there. That's authority. That's power. Christ is claiming here that he has all authority, all power. He is to be honored. In Luke chapter 1, again, the angel is talking to Mary in verse 31 this time. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Christ is saying here, I have all authority. I have the keys to the kingdom. I have all power. I can open doors. I can shut doors. I can do whatever I want because I have complete authority and power. Nothing is beyond my reach. So these are the three attributes that we see the Lord describes to Himself. And they're not, like I said, just three random attributes. As we go on and see His commendation to Philadelphia, we will see why he chose these specific three attributes. Um, pay attention and see how you can see that they tie in. So, if you look in chapter 3 at verse 8, we see our first commendation. And it's a familiar one. He says, uh, I know your works. And this isn't a u- unique statement, is it? We've heard this, I think four or five times before already, haven't we? He says it pretty much to every church. In fact, he said it to Sardis. But what's so interesting is he can say the same four words to Sardis and then we know by what he says next that it's not a good statement. He says to Sardis, I know your works. You have a rumor, the rumor is that you're alive, but you're actually dead. And then to Philadelphia, he says the same four words, but we know by the next statements, I know your works. You are a but... Um, he makes a promise to him. Sorry. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So we know that this is a positive, I know your works. Because he says to him, I have set before you an open door. 
You see, unlike Sardis, Philadelphia had been faithful. They had proven themselves faithful. So the Lord says He was opening a door for them. Just like James says to us, faith without works is dead. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by what I do. The people of Philadelphia had been faithful to live out their faith through their works. And it was evident to Christ. He says, I've seen your works. I've seen your faith in action. I've seen you live out what you say you believe. And because of that, I will open a door. Now, there's no real way of knowing what that door was. But when he says this to them, it's a promise to them. You know, maybe it was an opportunity for them to evangelize to the city. Who knows? But what we know is Christ says, You were faithful, so I will be faithful. And that's something that we need to remember in our own lives. A lot of times we want Christ to open the door before us. We want Him to provide the way before we step out. We stand at the edge and we say, Lord, you know, I don't really want to step out. If you would just open the door, show me the way first, then I'll gladly go that way. But He asks us to be faithful. He asks us to step out in faith first and He promises, I will open a door. I will show you the way. And when Christ opens doors, He can do amazing things. Because as we saw, He has all authority, all power. But we must step out first. Next in verse 8, He goes on to commend them in three more points. He says, I know you have but little power, yet you have kept My word and have not denied my name. The Greek word here for power is dunamum. Matthew's giving me a... I think that was close. So, uh, anyway, it's where we get our word dynamite. But this was a humble group of people. You know, perhaps they did not have impressive numbers, buildings, programs... But these things aren't important. He says, I know you have but little power. I know that you're but a weak, small church. But that's what Christ wants, isn't it? He doesn't want our strength. 1 Corinthians 12, 9-10 says, But He says to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In our weaknesses, Christ is glorified. And it was through this humble people that He was going to show His power and that He was the Almighty God, the Almighty God that can open doors that no one can shut. And in verse 9, we find His promise to them. Verse 9, He says this. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, 
but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So we see that the church in Philadelphia was probably receiving some persecution. And Christ uses a strong statement here. The synagogue of Satan. Who's he talking about? Anybody know? When Christ came, he came to the the people of Israel and he abolished the old law and sacrificial system. And some of the Jews accepted that and they received Christ and they said, this is the Messiah. But then some of the Jews didn't, did they? Some of the Jews stayed and with the Jewish rituals. Some of the religious leaders stayed and they continued, and even to this day they continue, to follow the old Jewish laws and rituals. And Christ calls them the synagogue of Satan. That's pretty strong, isn't it? But they have rejected Him. They have rejected the Messiah that they searched for, that they longed for all those years. He came to them and they, and they rejected Him. And so He says, they're no longer My people. They're no longer serving Me. They are now the synagogue of Satan. And early Christians received a lot of persecution from these religious leaders. And it was highly likely that the church in Philadelphia was being persecuted by the Jewish religious leaders there. But he makes a promise to them, doesn't he? The Lord says that these, the synagogue of Satan will bow down at your feet and will know that I have loved you. In Matthew 20.16, we read, The last will be first and the first will be last. These great Pharisees, these proud Jews, will bow down before these humble people. These Christians of little power. They will bow down before them. How humbling will that be? And what's furthermore, they will know that the Lord loved them these humble, weak people, the self-righteous one day will know that they were self-righteous, that they were proud, and that they were wrong. And the first will be last, and the last will be first. What a tremendous promise it is to these people, isn't it? That you may be being persecuted now, you may be looked on now, you may feel as though you're weak, but in your weakness I am strong. And one day, these people will bow before you and they will know that I have loved you. Next, he says, they will bow before you. He says, and has kept my word. In other words, they had obeyed His Word. They had stayed true to His Word. They had followed closely the precepts that He had laid out before them. And in verse 12, if you look down to verse 12, He says, And to those that conquer, He makes a promise. He says, Those that run with endurance the race set before Him, those that finish the good fight, the one who conquers, I will make Him a pillar in the temple of My God. 
and never shall he go out of it. The Lord promises these same people in the verses right before that he calls weak. He will make them temple pillars. A very symbol of solidarity, stability, and strength. Now, the city where Philadelphia is is still there. It's not named Philadelphia anymore. It's a little Turkish town. And if you were to go to this small Turkish town, and if you were to go up on a a little hill and look among some trees, you will find the the remnants of the church of Philadelphia. One thing remains. Guess what it is? A pillar. Isn't that crazy? All that remains of that church in Philadelphia is a single pillar, and it still stands there in this small Turkish town today among some trees. What an incredible symbol that is. But even greater than that, because one day that pillar will fall, the Lord promises that He will make a pillar them a pillar in the temple of God. And the Lord's temple is eternal. His throne is forever. John Phillips says, they will help uphold the eternal worship of the ages and the lofty halls of heaven. And Christ promises, He goes on to say, and they shall, uh, never shall He go out of it. Their place is secure. A place of honor and glory forever in the presence and the glory of their God and their King in His temple. What a tremendous promise. Then he goes on and he says, And has not denied my name. Even though they were weak, even though they were being persecuted by the religious leaders, he says that they had not denied his name. Through trials, hardships, blessings, persecutions, they had not denied my name. And because of this, we see a threefold promise in verse 12. Because they faithfully identified themselves with Christ, Christ says He will identify Himself with them. He says, I will mark them. And we see three marks. He says, I will write on Him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. Those of you that are against tattoos, you might want to get over that because we might be getting some. But how awesome is that? For starters, the Lord says, Christ, who is God, He says, I'll write on Him the name of my God, God the Father. What a mark to bear for all eternity. huh? Then he goes on to say, and I'll write on him the name of the city of my God. We as people are generally proud people, aren't we? Especially when it comes to where we're from. Right, Matthew? Southerners for life, huh? You know, I'm from Tennessee. I'm proud that I'm from Tennessee. I still don't really like to tell people I'm from Iowa, even though I've lived here for like nine years or so. no, longer than that, 12 years. 
No, I mean, I was awesome. Love it. Um, I still say, you know, I'm a southerner. I'm from Tennessee. That's my hometown. As U.S. citizens, we're proud to be U.S. citizens. That, that statement means we have rights and privileges, doesn't it? Proud to be an American. Or at least I know I'm free. Should we sing it together? No? <laughs> but we're... There <laughs> we go. Lev's going to lead us. But we're proud of where we're from, aren't we? How tremendous to bear the mark of the city of God, the new Jerusalem. How much more that that means than I'm a U.S. citizen. Because truth be told, this isn't our home, isn't it? This isn't where we're from. We're aliens, we're strangers, we're sojourners here. We are citizens of heaven. And he says, I will mark on them the name of the city of my God. And then lastly, thirdly, he says, I will write on him my own new name. We don't know what that is. But how tremendous to think. And we know all these tremendous, amazing names of Christ that he's been given throughout Scripture. God bears all kinds of names. Jehovah Jireh. Um, you know, there's, you've seen the posters with like 400 names of God. It's awesome. But to know that there's still one more coming, man, it's got to be awesome, doesn't it? I will write on Him my own new name. Man, how tremendous to walk around in eternity and to have others look at you and see... He bears those marks. What a tremendous glory to God. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. We have only to wait and wonder and glory at the mystery of the incredible God we serve and what it will be like one day to stand in His presence. On the heels of that thought, he says to them this, verse 10. He says, You have kept my word about patient endurance. They had been patiently waiting for the return of the Lord. They were faithful. They endured hostility. And yet through that, they were eagerly and patiently waiting for His return. So what does He promise to them? And this is a promise this morning that is tremendous and that is for all believers. Verses 10 through 11, He says, Because you have kept My word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell in the earth, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He said, I'm coming back for you. And we know that there's a tribulation coming, isn't there? But He has given us a promise that's true just as much for those Christians that it is for us today. That He's coming back for us. That He's going to return. He's going to take us to be with Him. 
And there's a trial coming on, on the world like none has ever seen. And we won't have to go through it. He says, I'm coming back soon. Some translations say quickly. And we can know what this means uh, because we see it in other verses. In 1 Corinthians 15:52, he says, He will return in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Matthew 24:44 says, The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. No man knows the hour. And it's going to be just like that. And they were patiently waiting, patiently enduring, waiting for His return. And in light of that, He urges them to hold on to what they have. Press on. Don't slack. Don't lose heart. Continue to look and long for that hour. Continue to run with endurance the race set before you. Continue to press on. And I would encourage us this morning to have that same mind as we see this day approaching. If you were here Wednesday night, you know, Benji alluded to the fact that the Lord promises when the end times come we'll see famines, wars, rumors of wars. I mean, I can't imagine it's going to get much worse than it is now, but it probably will. But the day is approaching. So let us be vigilant. Vigilant. There we go. Vigilant isn't a word, is it? Let us be vigilant to look for it. Let us live in light that the Lord could return at any moment. That as we saw this morning, we who have accepted that wonderful free gift of salvation, we are His sons and fathers. I love, I loved how Jaquay read, Abba, Father. One day we will stand in the presence and the glory of our God. And we have only but to imagine how tremendous that will be. So let us follow the example of this church. We're small too. Like Lev said this morning, we're weak. As, as humans, there's nothing special about us. But in our weakness, He is made strong. So let's follow in their set example. These five commendations and promises. Let's show our faith by what we do. Let's live out our faith. May it be evident in our lives. In our weakness, in our humility, let us declare His strength and His glory. Let us obey and hold fast to His Word. Let us always be eager to identify ourselves with our Lord and Savior and to honor His name. And lastly, let us daily look and pray for His return and to live in light of it. So that we 
when we one day stand in glory, we will just like this church in Philadelphia. Christ will have only only to commend us, only to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. What a tremendous thing that would be. I was so excited to, to share this message this morning. Last week was a tremendous message and it, it taught me a lot, but it was a very, what would you say, downer message? And we need those. We need that conviction. But this morning, I was so excited to be able to come again and encourage us and lift us up with the, with the message of Philadelphia. Let's not be Sardis, let's be Philadelphia. Let's press on. Let's run with endurance. Let's run that race together. Let's encourage one another. And let's be known for these things. So that when we get to heaven, Christ can say, Man, great adventure. Well done. Father, we thank You so much this morning that it's not about us, Father. We thank You so much this morning that, it, that salvation doesn't rely on us. That our eternity, Lord, is sealed in You. That it's because of Your blood, Father, that we are are redeemed, that we are made clean. And it's the only reason that one day we'll be able to stand in Your presence and in Your glory is because of the work of Your Son. We rejoice this morning that we do have a holy, sinless High Priest, Father, interceding for us. I pray that these tremendous truths and the the joy of Your return would spur us on, Father, um, to live like the church of Philadelphia did, Father. Use us, I pray, Lord. We need You um, because we are weak. And we need Your strength in our lives. Your Spirit. We pray this in Your precious and Your magnificent name. Amen.